Well, good morning. My name's Adrian. If we haven't yet met, I'd love to connect with you after the service. I'm one of the pastors here. Carney Free, as Kent just noted, Pastor Kent just noted, there's many great opportunities to, to serve the church right now. And if any of those that were just noted appeal to you right now, you'd like to give a try to kids' ministries or any other area of ministry, you can use that tear-off portion to let us know about that and put it in the communication boxes or out the information table right after the service, and we'll be sure to get back with you this week. I am really excited about this uh, new series that you just saw that little video on. It's titled, The God That Jesus Revealed. And I'm excited about this series for a number of different reasons. One of them is because I really believe that authentic transformation is possible. Many of us don't experience that much character transformation, but I really believe it is possible as we arrange our lives around the practices and the life of Jesus himself. And so we'll have an opportunity to do that a little bit more over the course of these next uh, 14, 15 weeks. This will be our series for, for the fall. I'm also excited about this series because every once in a while, we will do a series here at E-Free in which we're all studying the same thing, and this is one of those series. So as we're here on Sunday morning studying in this room, so also downstairs in our children's ministries, they're going to be uh, studying some of these same topics. And the passages though, that we go through, they'll go through downstairs, at least for a portion of their time together. And uh, on Wednesday night, Jordan Heinrichsen, our, our middle school and high school director, will be leading our middle school and high school students through these same passages also. And then finally, many, many life groups will be going through uh, this same set of questions that we offer on the back of our outlines that give a second opportunity to encounter the information that we study here on Sunday morning another time during the week. And I think that provides a great opportunity for us to grow when we're all studying the same thing together and we get a couple touches with it throughout the week. So I'm excited for this opportunity for us to grow as a church in an all-church series. And finally, I'm jazzed about this series because I love the person of Christ. And I love the fact that people, many, many people in our church and in the broader culture today who still find themselves to be kind of burned out on church. You know those folks? Lots of them. Burned out on church, maybe not sure what to make of God, maybe not sure what to make of God the Father. There's still a lot of people out there who are very curious about Jesus. Have you noticed that? There are some, it seems, that uh, though they've uh, been burned out by church, want nothing to do with church, they feel haunted by the beauty of the teachings of Christ. And so if you're in that spot today that you're not really sure well what you believe, you've come to just the right spot. And perhaps you know people in your neighborhood or your place of work that just want to know a bit more of what Christ teaches. I found that even as many people don't want to be at church anymore, they are still very interested in Jesus and in the portraits that he reveals of God. I think one of the things that I hope will accomplish in this series is put to death the idea that you have the God of the Old Testament over here and the God of the New Testament over here. And instead, what we'll learn is that God himself, the triune God, is utterly trustworthy. And we'll see in Jesus the God that was revealed in flesh. We'll learn what God the Father is like through the portrait of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Now, I want to share here at the front end 
that this requires us to embrace some mystery. When you talk about Jesus being fully God and fully human, as we will in the series and today, it requires us to embrace some mystery. And mystery is kind of hard for me to embrace. I have a relatively rational mind. I'd like to be able to uh, clearly say this is uh, something I can understand and therefore I believe it. But I'm learning the older that I get, there will be some things that I won't be able to understand. Would you agree? Even scientists are telling us now that there are many things that are true, but we may not be able to fully comprehend. Let me give a couple examples. How about gravity? Can you explain gravity? If so, come up on the stage and do it for us. I believe in it. I believe in it, but I cannot explain it. Or um, physicists tell us that light is two things at once. It's both wave and particle at the exact same time. And they don't know how. They don't know why. They simply tell us that it is. It's a mystery, but we bow to it as true. Likewise, chemists tell us this preposterous idea that H2O can be solid, liquid, and steam at the same time. Or not at the same time, but three different forms. Okay, that would be really hard to understand. Uh, we don't understand why. We don't really understand how. But it's true. And so we bow to it. And so also theologians will tell us that this person named Jesus is fully God and fully man at yet the same time. And that will remain something of a mystery, but I bow to it as true because it is clearly apprehended from the pages of Scripture. We lift it off the pages of Scripture, even if we can't completely comprehend it in our finite minds. Now, I don't know about you, I, I, uh, I don't want to understand everything about God. I really don't. Like, if there actually is a God, should my little feeble mind be able to understand everything about him? No, I don't think so. Hopefully there'll be some things that are too big to grasp that are beyond my limited comprehension. And I found anyway that as I embrace Christ as he is, fully God and fully human, even if I can't completely comprehend that, it actually increases my joy in him. It increases my sense of his richness, the richness of our Savior. So hold that in mind as we look at a number of scriptures that will provide a bit of a foundation for this series as a whole, and especially for today's message. Up on the screen, you'll see these. The first one is John chapter 1, verse 1, that speaks of Jesus in this way, that he is both fully God and fully man. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word is a term in Scripture used for Jesus, and it's saying, from the very beginning, from the foundations of the universe, there was Jesus with God the Father, and he was God. Then it goes on to say, 14 verses later, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, and yet at the same time full of truth. So he was the preexistent word that was with God, and then he became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and full of truth, fully God and yet fully man. I love the way the author of Hebrews conceptualizes this. Would you read Hebrews 1, verse 3 out loud from the screen with me? Would you please join me? The Son 
is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining. Okay, so the Son is the exact representation of the Father. We want to know what God the Father is like. You look no further than the Son. And that inspires you to know the goodness of the character of God. He's the radiance of his glory, and he keeps this world together. He sustains all things. Or one final example here, I consider the Apostle Philip's request to Jesus. He's interacting with Jesus and says, you are clearly a great teacher. You're a miracle worker. Perhaps you're even a prophet. But what we really need, the longing of the Jews across the centuries was to know the Father. So would you please, Lord Jesus, if you are this teacher that we think you are, would you please just show us the Father? And Jesus' response to him is so beautiful. He says simply, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So once again, when you see Jesus, as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can know what the Father is like. Jesus goes on to say in this very passage to Philip and the rest of the disciples, I and the Father are one. The words I say to you are not my own. Rather, I only speak those words that the Father has given to me. I only do those things that the Father tells me to do. And so the takeaway of all of this is that Jesus himself provides sufficient knowledge for us to know what God is like. If you know what Jesus is like, then you know the good character of God the Father as well. That's vitally important for us to understand as we seek to develop trust in God. And we see all kinds of passages, especially in the Old Testament, sometimes that we can't make sense of. Well, Jesus reveals the Father. So sometimes we hold on to those things that are fuzzy, and we keep them over here as we hold on to Jesus, who is really, really clear, and we say, this is what God is like. He reveals the Father to us. Jesus is utterly and totally trustworthy. Now, all that said, that foundation fought for the series, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 17. What we're going to do here this morning is look at a single passage that helps us get into a bit of understanding, again, what God is like. And, and each and every week in the series, we'll look at a story or an event or an episode fought from Jesus' life, uh, a memorable uh, episode from Jesus' life that teaches us something of Him and teaches us uh, something of the Father and then we'll seek to apply that to our lives and grow in our trust in God through the process. So however you uh, read from the scriptures, uh, be it a phone or a tablet or the paper Bible, let's turn there now or else you'll find these verses up on the screen as well. As we learn today about this truth, our God is holy. Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah." He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and kind of shut Peter up. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When his disciples heard this, they fell on their faces 
and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but only Jesus. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, as we open up this passage, we pray that you would teach us from your word. We believe this word is true, and we ask, God, that you would show us a little bit more of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through these words. Help us to understand his power and his love, his holiness, as we study together. What we don't need is another talk. What we need is an experience with the God who is different, who is unique and holy. So we ask for that this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I must confess that um, I've read this passage so many times over the years, and I've always been a little bit perplexed by why Jesus transfigured himself before James and John and Peter. Like, this is pretty amazing what he's doing here. Why was it only in front of these three? Why didn't he reveal himself in this beautiful transfiguration to 5,000 people when he fed them? Or to 4,000 people when he fed them another time? Or when he's teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount? Was he just kind of showing off here for his good friends? What's going on? Well, I think it's, it's this. If you look back to the previous passage in Matthew 16, starting at verse 24, you see the context for this passage. And uh, we're fortunate in our Bible to have these chapter and verse divisions, and many times they really help us, but other times the chapter and verse divisions uh, hurt us because we fail to go back and see what came before. And this is one of those times, the chapter and verse divisions are not a part of the original Bible, and they provide a bit of context as to why Jesus did this with these three disciples. Let me read this passage starting in verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man or a woman if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, what Jesus is doing here is preparing his disciples for the coming reality of his ultimate purpose on earth. And he says it here. He says, my ultimate purpose is to go up that hill called Calvary and to carry with me that old rugged cross to the hillside where I will be crucified, where I will sacrifice myself for all people across all time that whoever would believe, believe in me would not perish but have everlasting life. I have come to seek and to save what was lost and to give my life up for the broken, and I am going to have to pick up my cross. He's preparing his disciples for that. And then he prepares them for what is coming for them too. When he says, you also will have to pick up your cross and follow me. And anyone who seeks to save his life will actually lose it, but he who loses life for the sake of the gospel actually will find it. And he's saying this to these disciples, giving them a little hint of what is going to happen for them as well. And as you read early church history, you realize that this is exactly what happened to these three disciples also. That James and Peter and John were executed 
and were subjects of brutality, much in the way that Jesus was. Peter was actually crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior. James was beheaded, and John was exiled to a solitary land where he lived out the remaining decades of his life in prison there, all because they would not budge from the central conviction that Jesus died and rose physically from from the grave on the third day. And so what Jesus does here is at the end of chapter 16, he says, this is coming to you. And so I'm going to give you a vision. I'm going to give you a snapshot, a movie trailer, if you will, a little preview of the beauty that will come to you later and that will sustain you through the suffering experiences that are about to come to you in these next years. And so he says this to close out this passage, verse 28. He says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here here today will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then, fast forward to verse 1. After six days, six days later, they see the Son of Man in all of his glory. They say, Jesus says, you will not taste death before you see the Son of Man coming in all of his glory. And six days later, they got to see the Son of Man in his radiant, glorified state where he is right now in heaven. They got to see that at the transfiguration. This isn't speaking to the end of days at all. This is speaking to six days later, you will not even be past, and you will see the Son of Man in all of his holiness and all of his glory. And right before their eyes, verse 2 says, he was transfigured. The Greek word is metamorphoso, from which you get metamorphosis. He was metamorphosed right before their eyes, such that one moment they saw this man who had calluses on his hands, was a carpenter and a teacher, and the next moment they saw him in his pre-existent form, his glorious radiance, and it became a snapshot of what they would see of him after they suffered and died and went to be with him in heaven. It was a promise that this is a preview of what will come to you after suffering. Suffering will be a part of your story but it won't be the end of your story. Can I get an amen? Suffering will be the part of our story. But this will be the end of our story. Glory with Christ in this beautiful state will be the end of our story. You see, the first time Jesus came, he entered as a newborn babe in a stable, as a strong yet gentle man. He was full of compassion. He was still fully, fully God, but to some degree, he restrained some of the divine use of his superpowers. Today's a, a family worship service. We've got a bunch of kids in here. Kids, do you have favorite, favorite Avengers heroes? Kids? Any kids in here? Okay. I see a few hands up. Thank you. You have favorite Avengers heroes, and they have all these superpowers. And let me tell you, Jesus had so many more. And he restrained the divine use of those superpowers for his days on earth. But then one day when he comes again in glory, he will not restrain them anymore. And when we meet Christ, when we die and meet Christ, we will see him in the fullness of his power, the fullness of his holiness. And I think that's what they got here, a glimpse of Christ in his righteousness, his holiness, his glory. Holiness means this. It is to be 
set apart, to be unique, different. It's one to whom we set our reverence. It's one to whom we ascribe awe. He is the object of our awe. To speak of holiness is to speak of one that is totally other, that is different than us, that is worthy of all of our worship and affections, that he's almost unspeakable. These are the words that we pray to our Heavenly Father in the model prayer. Remember how it goes? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Righteous, perfect, to be revered, set apart. Holy is your name. We want to hold on to the fullness of God's character. I would really encourage you to take some time this week to meditate on these first eight verses of Matthew chapter 17. Just to chew on it and read it slowly. Perhaps to underline what really stands out to you. To go back into a study Bible and understand the context a little bit more. To pray through it and ask to have a deeper experience of the holiness of Christ as you study this very passage. Because there's this little tendency that all of us fall into, me included, and it's this. It's making Jesus in our own image. Thinking of him as a really swell chap, kind of like me. We all fall into that. And so we miss the totality of the greatness of this one who is fully human and fully divine. And sometimes when we're going through times that we need to know that we have a friend, uh, we need to know of his compassion, we need to know of his love, we can dwell on that and we can think of Jesus like this. And at other times we can go through seasons where we've really been hurt, people have done us wrong, and we need to experience the justice of God. Perhaps you've even been oppressed in some way in your life, and that is happening. And you go through a season where you need the clairvoyant truth of Christ to come, and you long for his victory. And maybe in those moments, you imagine him more like this. And which one is it? It's both. Oh, it's both. He is the compassionate one who heals and touches and brings children into his arms and loves us in our place of weakness. He comes to touch the least and the last and the lost. He is also the one who is mighty in truth and great in power and he will win the day. Victory will be his. He is the one who is pristine in holiness and shows no favoritism toward anyone. And he is also the one who is able to forgive sins impartially. He is the all-powerful, all-loving, holy, kind, righteous, just God. He is the one that we revere. He is the one that is worthy of all of our worship. And so we just ask for these moments like James and John and Peter experienced here that they have a touch with the love of God, have a touch with the power, have a touch with the holiness of God and they fall to their knees in reverence. Now, perhaps you've wondered before why Moses and Elijah are in this passage. And I think it's very instructive why they are. 
Moses, of course, is the giver of the law. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. He went up and met with God on Mount Sinai and received the tablets of stone out of which were the Ten Commandments, that the people got their law. And the people of Israel were always looking forward to the fulfillment of all of the law and all of the prophets. And Moses speaks of the law. And not only was he the writer of the law, but also he went up to that Mount Sinai and he met with God. And you might remember that in Exodus 33, he prays for a little touch of the glory of God. And God tells him, you can't see my whole glory and live, but I will make my goodness pass in front of you. And as my goodness passes in front of you, you'll get a glimpse, you'll get a touch of the holiness of God. And as he was up on that mountainside, God's goodness passes before Moses' face as he turns his back, and, and God says to Moses, he, I'm not sure if he hears it or not, but, but, but Moses gets this sense, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, he forgives to the third generation. Yet, on the other hand, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He says both of those things. And you get in this moment of you, again, of the holiness of God, the love and compassion of God, and the justice of God. That's Moses. That's why he's there. And then second, yeah, you get this portrait of Elijah. And Elijah is the fiercest of all prophets, and he represents the the other prophets who were longing for the Son of God to be revealed. And uh, Elijah went through a time of, of great suffering as well. And he's wandering through his own wilderness, much like Moses wandering through a wilderness. And in the midst of his wilderness, he escapes from a bloodthirsty queen by the name of Jezebel. And as he escapes from her, and she's hunting down his life, he is weeping. He says, God, what I need is a touch from you. What I need is for you to come and answer my prayer. I am lonely and brokenhearted, and I feel like I'm the only one who is vying for your character. Would you please come and help me? And again, he goes up to a mountainside. Hint, hint. There's lots of mountains. There's lots of wilderness in each of these visions. You've got to get away if you want to meet with God. So he gets away. And there, as he's away, he meets with God. And maybe you'll remember that God didn't come to him in an earthquake. God didn't come to him in a fire. God didn't come to him in a Nebraska windstorm. God came to him in a still, quiet almost imperceptible voice, and he falls on his knees in reverence before the holiness of his God. And I think what's going on in this passage is these three are learning. The one that Moses and Elijah spoke of and looked forward to, and they experienced the holiness of God. Guess what? He is here now amongst us in this moment, and we get to enjoy this holy moment with the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It would be enough to make us tremble, wouldn't it? To to view, to get a visitation from the transfigured Christ. And so that's exactly what's going on here for Peter and James and John. They they have Moses and Elijah and there's Jesus and they start to trembling and, and Peter is quick to speak and slow to listen, right? And he's not really sure what to say but he needs to fill up the air. And so he speaks before thinking, and he says, Lord, this is so good to be here. Should we uh, take out the the pegs and the hammers and make some shelters for these three beans? And I can make some tents right now for him, Lord Jesus. He's such an eager beaver. And I think what Peter's doing here in this moment, is he says, it's so good for us to be here, is he's saying, this is so totally awesome. I want to savor this moment in the holiness of God. 
And so we'll forgive the fact that he's quick to speak. He, he just wants to savor this moment in the holiness of God. Like, I mean, Nebraska 43, Fresno State 10. That's like a little bit of awesome, my friends. Right? Come on, come on. That's a little bit of awesome. But this is a totally different kind of awesome, right? We should give praise to our God. We should adore him. This is a totally different kind of awesome to be in the presence of the one who alone is God. And we would tremble. We would stutter. We wouldn't know what to say. And we would speak before we thought. And that's what Peter does. And in this moment, God just kind of says, Peter, shush it. Shush it. In the nicest way he can say, he tells him to shut up. God wouldn't say that. Okay, don't quote me. God wouldn't say that. But he says, shush. And Peter was still speaking. Verse 5. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Do whatever he tells you, because I am so well pleased in my beloved son. Listen to him. And once again, they fall to their knees. They can't stand. They hear this, and they fall on their faces, and they were terrified. Friends, this is just the natural response that we would ever get if we experienced a little bit of the holiness of God ourselves. When we have moments where we experience a bit of awe at the greatness of God, we fall down. We begin to tremble. We can't speak. We get a tingle down our spine. When we grasp a bit of the holiness of Christ, we tremble. We stand in awe. I mean, think about it. Think about times that you've got away to a lake and you haven't always been in earshot of people such that you've been able to be in earshot of God. And maybe you've heard something from him. You've got a personal touch from him. It may not be an audible voice, but you've had a sense of being in his presence and it makes you tremble. Or maybe you can remember a time that you realized that that you were created on purpose, that you're not an accident, that God very intentionally created you and he gave his son for you and he has great purposes for you and you realize that and it made you stand in awe. Or maybe there's even been a Sunday morning when one of our worship leaders has been leading up here and you've been singing the words of a beautiful song and you've just been lost in adoration of God. And normally you're tempted to look behind you to see if anyone is noticing. But that Sunday particularly, you didn't look at anyone except for God. And you just rose your hand in worship. Or you fell to your knees in worship. Or your face hit the ground in worship. Because you were in awe in the presence of God. And you lost all fear of man. You lost all need for the applause of man or woman. And you just fell to your knees. And it's when we're there, in this place of awe, where we find ourselves trembling before the holiness of God, that our hearts can be a bit broken, but then, right there, we are healed. And that's exactly what these three found. Remember, they're broken, they're on their face, and do not miss the last piece of this episode. They're broken, they're on their face, and then Jesus comes to them, and he personally picks them up, and he says, do not fear. Listen, I'm right here. You can stand. You can be in my presence. You need not fear. 
You, you see, when we get an experience with the greatness of God, when we get experience with the holiness of God, this simultaneous divinity, divinity and, and, and humanity of Christ, we rightly will tremble. But God doesn't leave us trembling. He picks us up and he holds us near to him. It says, it's okay, you can stand in my presence. My right hand of authority is on you. I love you, and you can stand. Now, let me close out with this. Uh, the scriptures tell us to be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so how does that happen? That we would grow in holiness. The only way I know of is experiencing a bit more of the greatness of God and then being lifted up by Christ and to realize that I can still stand in his love. And so what are you doing to increase your holy moments with God? What are you doing to increase the length and the frequency of your holy moments with God? Sometimes it's prayer, sometimes it's studying certain passages. Sometimes it's worship here on Sunday morning. Sometimes it's communion, which we're about to take together. I'll share with you that last week, I had a holy moment with God in which God didn't say anything to me. But I was in a pretty bad spot. And when I am operating in my flesh, the truth is, I can be severe. And I can be overly intense. And I can be irritable. I can take myself too seriously. And I can be impatient. And as I was just studying the scriptures and praying, I took out my journal and I decided to reckon with that and just admit what it is, that it's sin. It's sin when I fall into impatience. It's sin when I get severe with family or severe toward you. I pray I wouldn't do that for anyone, least of all my family. It's sin. And so I just admitted that and kind of processed through it and in the midst of processing through that, I didn't get any voice, I didn't get any earthquake, I didn't get any lightning bolt, but I had this sense of Christ coming to me and saying, it's okay, you're forgiven. I forgive you, and I'll pick you up, and I'll give you strength and newfound courage to go out and give it another try. And it was a touch. With the severity of God, the intensity of God, toward my failures and then the love of his son when I was weak and it enabled me to stand and to go forth without fear. So that's it for me. But I ask you, what are you doing to increase your frequency and duration of holy moments with God? Because we will not will ourselves toward holiness. We gain personal holiness. We become set apart. We become different kinds of people. We are transformed in the presence of the one who alone is God. Would you pray with me? Oh, gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you that you enable us to stand that you do not leave us on our knees trembling, but you forgive us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are different from us. 
I would not want to worship a God that is just the same as me. How pitiful would that be? Lord Jesus, we think on your cross now and we prepare to take communion. We remember that it was at this moment that the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the purity of God came together with the love of God. And they met at the cross as Jesus chose willingly to give himself for ordinary folks like us who fall down. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to the communion table right now thanking you for your great power, thanking you for your great love, thanking you for your pristine holiness, and asking that we might experience a little bit more of you even as we take communion. Would you forgive us where we have failed? And then would you lift us up to give us a second chance once again, as all of us need? How we thank you for your loving forgiveness. How we thank you that you are worthy of worship. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, our deaconesses and our deacons will take time now to pass the elements through the rows. And in just a moment, we will all take the bread together. As you follow Christ, you are most welcome to take this bread as it symbolizes his death for you.